welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today is February 10th, and today we're going to look at Genesis 41. As a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word, and then I offer a very brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and the theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading from Genesis 41 today. Genesis 41 says this, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And so in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And when Pharaoh was angry and his servants uh, and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was, was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, Joseph, I had had a dream, and there was no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And so Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten, then nobody would have known that they had eaten them, uh, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw my in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted to the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are the seven years. Then the dreams is one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are the seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. 
It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubting of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the good for the food in their cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish uh, through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zapath Panay, and he gave him in marriage Asset, the daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. And so Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put Every city, the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, and he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Un, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The, the, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and, and the seven years of famine began uh, to come. As Joseph had said, and there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. And so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt, where all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, this is our reading today for February 10th from Genesis 41. 
Now, in interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Joseph shows himself to be a prototype of the latter prophets because he not only describes future events, but he also gives guidelines for mitigating or averting the troubles ahead, as we see in Genesis 41, 25-36 and Isaiah 1, 1-20. This combination of warning and wisdom pleases the Pharaoh greatly, as we've read about in our chapter today. The truth of Joseph's word is so evident that the king of Egypt recognizes the Holy Spirit's presence is with him in Genesis 41, 38. So pagan notions probably color the, you know, the Pharaoh's concept of Joseph's anointing since his nation worships many gods. He is speaking with more wisdom than he knows, just like Caiaphas did when he spoke of Jesus' death as a substitute in John eleven forty five through 53. Pharaoh immediately heeds the counsel to place a man in charge of famine relief in Genesis 41, 34 through 36, and chooses Joseph for this task. Now, Jacob's son is invested with more prestige than we might have expected. He's now second to the Pharaoh in command over the land of the Nile. After years of being faithful in little things, obeying uh, Jacob, serving Potiphar, and managing the prisons, Joseph is finally given authority over much, as Matthew 25, 14-30 tells us. John Christendom preached, Joseph bore distress with endurance. Endurance gave him character. Having such character, he acted in hope, and hope did not disappoint him. Now, Joseph is given all the trappings of royalty, the Pharaoh's signet ring, fine clothing, jewelry, and a chariot in Genesis 41, 41 through 42. As was customary, the king gives this foreigner an Egyptian name, Zapiath Pinah, which means something like, God has spoken and he lives. Joseph is further established in his position through his marriage to the daughter of the priest of On, which was the center of the worship of the sun god Ra, one of the chief deities in the Egyptian pantheon. Now, Jacob's son was granted all this because he relied on the Lord and was empowered by the Holy Spirit, necessary qualifications for a godly, wise ruler, as we're going to see in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and even in Isaiah 11. Thousands of years after Joseph, our Savior was also given this spirit to reign as David's greatest son over all those captives he sets free in Luke 4, 16 through 21. You see, the spirit who gave wisdom to Jacob and empowered Christ to rule over all is the same Holy Spirit whom the Father freely grants to his people today, as we see in John 14, 15 through 17. Even now, he is writing God's law on the hearts of his own people and slaying the remaining vestiges of sin and death as we put it to death in our lives. And as we submit to the Lord, the Spirit's work to make us holy becomes more and more evident in our lives. So let us cease resisting the direction of of God and the conviction of sin so that we may become more like Christ. Part of Joseph's promotion to vizier or prime minister over Egypt was his marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, according to Genesis 41:45. Potiphar Potiphar's family led the worship of the sun god Ra, an important deity in Joseph's day, and was therefore greatly esteemed. Pharaoh joined Joseph to this family in order to establish Joseph as a ruler in the eyes of the people. The name Asiat means she who belongs to Neith, an Egyptian goddess. And so success can often be a curse. For example, Gideon and Solomon were led astray after their status rose in Judges 8, 22-28 and 1 Kings 11. And yet Joseph remained faithful to the Lord. True, he married into a pagan family, a practice that God forbids in the word. And yet it may be that the Lord used this marriage to convert Joseph's wife to the worship of himself. Far far from conclusive, Philo, a Jewish philosopher who lived in Egypt during the first century AD, mentions a story in which Asenath turns to God. 
Whether that's true or not, we don't know. The biblical text doesn't tell us. But even if this information that we're talking about is merely a legend, there is clear biblical evidence that Joseph maintained a strong witness to the one true God. Our chapter narrates the birth of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and their names prove Joseph's continued awareness of the Lord's presence with him in the land of the Nile in Genesis 41, 50 through 52. Anytime Jacob's son would have to explain the names of his boys to the Egyptians, he could testify to the Almighty God. Notably, the name Ephraim connects Joseph to God's promise to make Abraham fruitful in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so in Egypt, his great-grandson Joseph was increased. This was especially meaningful to Moses' original audience, the Israelite slaves in Egypt. And so if God blessed Abraham's son Joseph in the land of affliction, as Genesis 41, 52 says, these slaves could be confident that he would prosper them in the very same land since he also uh, were sons of the patriarch. Now Joseph bore witness to the land through his work ethic. He is able to gather up a tremendous store of grain, as we see in verses 46 to 49 of our chapter, that is later used to fight hunger of all the earth, as we see in verses 53 through 57 of our chapter. Through Joseph, God blessed the world, thereby confirming his word to Abraham's family in Genesis 12:3 and his sovereign trustworthiness. Especially in the United States, many people aspire to be a self-made man. And yet, we who serve Christ know that there's no such thing. God, in his sovereignty, is the one who dictates what makes a man. And a man, in his eyes, is he who loves the Lord with all of his heart and loves his neighbor as himself, as we see in Mark 12, 28-34. You see, we must remember that it is God, our King, who preserves all who love him and destroys all the wicked, as Psalm 145:14 and Psalm 145 20 tells us hope is that that one non-physical quality without which abundant life is finally impossible take away a man's livelihood and he will press on doing what he can to find work as long as he has hope the right opportunity for work is out there let a woman's friends and family abandon her and she will not give up on all relationships as long as she has hope that things will get better. Destroy that hope altogether, however, and they will descend into suffering its dreadful consequences. Now, if anyone in the Bible had reason to be hopeless, it was Joseph. Here was a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers, likely never to be rescued again. But circumstances were not always this bad. Potiphar brought him and eventually appointed him to a high position in his house in Genesis 39, as we've seen. This improvement in this situation, it was only temporary, for Joseph was thrown into jail, even though he was an innocent man, as we saw in Genesis 39. He also gained rank while in prison, which was a good thing, although it certainly was not as good as being a free man. Eventually, hope flickered for Joseph when a fellow prisoner promised to put in a good word for for him with the king in Genesis 40. But that hope all but died when this fellow prisoner forgot all about him. So two more years passed until Joseph had the opportunity to enjoy the favor of Pharaoh and rule over Egypt as the king's second in command, as we're looking at today. Thirteen years passed from the time Joseph entered slavery at age 17 until he became the Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt at, at 30 years of age. Even even though the scriptures stress that during this period the Lord is with Joseph, as we see in Genesis 39, this is seen more easily in retrospect. Though he never lost hope in God completely, knowing he was sustained until the day of his exaltation, Joseph no doubt struggled with trusting God at times, since he took what seemed the most uh, circuitous route possible to vindicate his servant. 
God, of course, had the greater good in view, in view the whole time, eventually putting Joseph in a place where he would save many people. This truth applies to us today. God providentially directs all things, even pain towards his greater good. Even when we cannot see how the Lord is working all things to the ends of our good and for his glory and for our joy. So in the midst of trouble and suffering, it can be difficult to believe that the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. So often it's easy to despair, believing that God has abandoned us and that he will not keep his promise to to work all things together for the good of his own. But our Father is sovereign. He is working for our ultimate good and for the advance of his kingdom, even when things seem darkest. See, God never said to his people that we would have easy lives. On the contrary, the first promise of salvation said that the woman's seed will have his heel bruised in Genesis 3.15. The woman's offspring, the Messiah, and those who trust him will suffer at the hands of the serpent and his seeds, that is, all who hate the Lord. Patriarchs such as uh, Jacob, who was forced to serve Laban for 25 years, as we saw in Genesis 31, demonstrated this word to be true. Then, of course, Joseph was forgotten in prison even after he did a great deed for one of the royal officials, as we saw in chapters 39 through 40 of Genesis. And yet the bruising of the woman's seed is not all God promised in Genesis 3.15. He also promised that the Messiah and in him all believers will crush Satan's head and that we have final victory over evil. And as we look at Genesis even more, we're going to see how this aspect of God's promise to Adam and Eve became a reality in Joseph's life. Moses tells us in chapter 41 that the Lord sent dreams to the Pharaoh to rescue Joseph from jail. Ancient Egyptians, they believed dreams were relatory and that their king was the chief recipient of such oracles. Now, notably, Pharaoh's dreams in verses 1 through 8 of our chapter, they contained images familiar to him. It made sense for cows to come out of the Nile because they often stood in the river to find refuge from the heat and the flies. And although ugly thin cows eating fat ones without gaining weight was a horrific sight to the Pharaoh, it paled in comparison to his vision of the seven blighted ears of corn. His country usually fared well during famines because the annual overthrow of the Nile River kept the soil enriched with minerals. Centuries after Joseph, the Roman Empire turned to Egypt as its chief source of grain. Understandably, the, the Pharaoh is unsettled when he wakes up because blighted crops were rarely found in his land. It had been two years since Joseph first heard that he might find his way out of the unjust sentence. Just enough time for him to lose hope if the cupbearer would remember him before the king. But as so often happens, the Lord intervenes here at what seems to be the last possible moment. The Pharaoh's nightmares will ensure Jacob's favorite son is not forgotten any longer. Matthew Henry notes that the chief cupbearer had commended Joseph to the Pharaoh right away. He might have gone back to Canaan and not be in a position to interpret the dream and save his family. Indeed, as Henry says, Joseph could later look back and see that God's time for the release of his people will appear at the fittest time. The Lord may intervene at what might seem to be the midnight hour, but he always intervenes according to his timing and his plan. Pharaoh's dream horrifies him, and, and he quickly sends for Joseph after his own wise men are unable to interpret the dream, as we see in verses 8 through 14 of our chapter today. Now, we understand that his vision was especially frightening to him, not only because it questioned Egypt's ability to produce uh, you know, healthy grain, but also because of the emasculated cattle. Now, the Hebrew phrase used to describe these cows is used nowhere else in the word of God, implying that they were uniquely grotesque. So in a floor 
flurry of activity, Joseph is released from the pit that is the prison and dressed in a manner appropriate for an audience with the Pharaoh, according to verse 14. His interpretation of dreams is what angered his brothers and, and got him cast in the pit in the first place in Genesis 37, 18-36. But now, ironically, it is the same gift that gets him out. Pharaoh's embellishments while telling Joseph of his dream, ugly cows that he had never seen in all the land of Egypt, according to Genesis 41:19, it indicates that he sees his visions as threatening. Joseph's interpretation bears this out. In fact, the cows and the corn, they represent abundance and the scarcity of Egypt's uh, agriculture. And Joseph tells him that seven years of hunger are on this way. But, but this cloud, it has a similar lining. Although the famine is sure to come, seven years of plenty will precede it, as we see in verses 17 through 32 of our chapter. Our passage teaches our need for humility when God calls us for service. All of our talents and all of our abilities come from the Lord, who by his spirit strengthens us to face every circumstance. Joseph's life, it shows us that we succeed only because of the Lord's grace that gives what is needed for faithful service. Due to events outside of his control, he can now stand before the Pharaoh and give God uh, give God's wisdom to Pharaoh. John Christendom writes, Do you see how wonderful a thing it is to be helped by, by grace from on high? See how many things divine providence had arranged so that the events affecting Joseph's life should come to pass. Now, Jacob's favorite son understands this and is quick to credit God with his gifts. As a mature believer, Joseph, John Calvin comments, wishes above all things to ascribe to God the glory due to his name. Each one of us must join with Paul and confess that by the grace of God I am what I am, as 1 Corinthians 15.10 says. The cross of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit crush any thought of self-sufficiency. See, we have no ability in and of ourselves to minister in this world, and we do all things only by His grace. And so consider today how often you thank the Lord for His gifts to you. Even if you do not have the opportunity to do so publicly, make sure you recognize His gracious gift to you in Christ. You know, as the largest empire in Joseph's day, Egypt truly was the world's superpower, respected for its knowledge, its prestige, and even its strength. It was inconceivable that the Egyptian superpower could be threatened, and not surprisingly, that, that the Pharaoh was seen as a god. In fact, there was and still is one greater than the Pharaoh and his empire, the Lord God Almighty. His wisdom and might alone could solve the problems facing the land of the Nile. None of the court sages were able to interpret the Pharaoh's dream in verse 8 of our chapter today. But Joseph explained the meaning of the vision because he relied on God's wisdom as we see in verses 14 through 32 of our chapter. Coupled with this, the famine illustrates the Lord's sovereignty. Yahweh could bring mighty Egypt to its knees, and their savior, the Pharaoh, was powerless to stop the Lord. And yet the Lord's purpose in this was not to destroy the Egyptians, but to reveal himself as the only savior. Joseph prescribes wise actions so that Egypt will not perish. Rescue is possible for the Pharaoh and his people if they listen to God's word through Joseph. Salvation remains available to all today if they repent and believe and put their hope and trust in Christ alone. Joseph's predictions help us understand the purpose of prophecy. You see, when prophets spoke, they, they did so not primarily to reveal the future, but to motivate responsible activity. Joseph was not a fatalist, and he, and he did not end his speech to the Pharaoh saying, this famine is coming and we cannot stop it. Let us hope 
things do not get too bad. You see, biblical Christianity is not a fatalistic religion like Islam, which teaches that man's decisions have no real impact on the plan of God. Scripture says the Lord ordains all things, but it also tells us many details are hidden from us in Deuteronomy 29, 29. And so what to us seems set in stone is often subject to change, as we see in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. Now, we need to say that the Lord knows the future, but he usually hides the future from us. Instead, he warns of judgment and he even offers blessing to motivate human choices that joyously do the will of God and bring him glory. John Calvin says that Genesis 41:33 shows how true prophecy eschews fatalism. God gives prophecies that we should form men to piety, would lead them to repentance, and would excite them to prayer when oppressed with fear. Now, some Reformed Christians easily fall prey to fatalist thinking. We might think that that since Jesus says that the poor will always be with us, it is useless to try to help them. Or maybe we think that we can give up crucifying our flesh because we have struggled with a particular sin for decades and no end to the fight seems forthcoming. But God's declarations in Scripture must move us to worship, to repentance, to prayer, and to be holy. Otherwise, we do not believe the Word of God. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and today is February 10th, and we've looked at Genesis 41. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.